everyone, this is Kristen again, reading from the book Night. This is the second part of chapter one. Spring 1944. Splendid news from the Russian front. There could no longer be any doubt. Germany would be defeated. It was only a matter of time, months or weeks perhaps. The trees were in bloom. It was a year like so many others, with its spring, its engagements, its weddings, and its births. The people were saying, the Red Army is advancing with giant strides. Hitler will not be able to harm us, even if he wants to. Yes, we even doubted his resolve to exterminate us. Annihilate an entire people? Wipe out a population dispersed throughout so many nations? So many millions of people? By what means? In the middle of the 20th century? And thus my elders concerned themselves with all manner of things, strategy, diplomacy, politics, and Zionism, but not with their own fate. Even worse, the beetle had fallen silent. He was weary of talking. He would drift through synagogue or through the streets, hunched over, eyes cast down, avoiding people's gazes. In those days, it was still possible to buy immigration certificates to Palestine. I asked my father to sell everything, to liquidate everything, and to leave. I'm too old, my son, he answered. Too old to start a new life. Too old to start from scratch in some distant land. Budapest Radio announced the fastest party had seized power. The regent Miklos Horthy was forced to ask a leader of the pro-Nazi Nihilus party to form a new government. Yet we still were not worried. Of course we had heard of the fascist, but it was all in the abstract. It meant nothing more to us than a change of ministry. The next day brought really disquieting news. German troops had penetrated Hungarian territory with the government's approval. Finally, people began to worry in earnest. One of my friends, Moish Chaim Berkowitz, returned from the capital for Passover and told us, The Jews of Budapest live in an atmosphere of fear and terror. Anti-Semantic acts take place every day, in the streets, on the trains. The fascists attack Jewish stores, synagogues. The situation is becoming very serious. The news spread through Saget like wildfire. Soon that was all people talked about, but not for long. Optimism soon revived. The Germans will not come this far. They will stay in Budapest, for strategic reasons, for political reasons. In less than three days, German army vehicles made their appearance on our streets. Anguish. German soldiers with their steel helmets and their death's head emblem. Still, our first impressions of the Germans were rather reassuring. The officers were billeted in private homes, even in Jewish homes. Their attitude towards their hosts was distant but polite. They never demanded the impossible. Made no offensive remarks and sometimes even smiled at the lady of the house. A German officer lodged in the Khan's house across the street from us. We were told he was a charming man, calm, likable, and polite. Three days after he moved in, he brought Miss Khan a box of chocolates. The optimists, optimists were jubilant. Well, what did we tell you? You wouldn't believe us. There they are, your Germans. What do you say now? Where's their famous cruelty? The Germans were already in our town. The fascists were already in power. The bridge was already out, and the Jews of Saget were still smiling. The eight days of Passover. The weather was sublime. My mother was busy in the kitchen. The synagogues were no longer open. People gathered in private homes, no need to provoke the Germans. Almost every rabbi's home became a house of prayer. We drank, we ate, we sang. 
The Bible commands us to rejoice during the eight days of celebration, but our hearts were not in it. We wished the holiday would end so as to not have to pretend. On the seventh day of Passover, the curtain finally rose. The Germans arrested the leaders of the Jewish community. From that moment on, everything happened very quickly. The race toward death had begun. First edict. Jews were prohibited from leaving their residences for three days under penalty of death. Morse the beetle came running to our house. I warned you, he shouted, and left without waiting for a response. The same day, the Hungarian police burst into every Jewish home in town. A Jew was henceforth forbidden to own gold, jewelry, or any valuables. Everything had to be handed over to the authorities under penalty of death. My father went down to the cellar and buried our savings. As for my mother, she went on tending to the many chores in the house. Sometimes she would stop and gaze at us in silence. Three days later, a new decree. Every Jew had to wear the yellow star. Some prominent members of the community came to consult with my father, who had connections at the upper levels of the Hungarian police. They wanted to know what he thought of the situation. My father's view was that it was not all bleak, or perhaps he just did not want to discourage the others to throw salt on their wounds. The yellow star? So what? It's not lethal. Poor father. Of what then did you die? The new edicts were already being issues. issued. We no longer had the right to frequent restaurants or cafes, to travel by rail, to attend synagogue, to be in the streets after 6 o'clock in the evening. Then came the ghettos. Two ghettos were created in Saget, a large one in the center of the town occupied four streets, and another smaller one extended over several alleyways on the outskirts of town. The street we lived on, Serpent Street, was in the first ghetto. We therefore could remain in our house, but as it occupied a corner, the windows facing the street outside the ghetto had to be sealed. We gave some of our rooms to relatives who had been driven out of their homes. Little by little, life returned to normal. The barbed wire that encircled us like a wall did not fill us with real fear. In fact, we felt like this was not a bad thing. We were entirely among ourselves. A small Jewish republic. A Jewish council was appointed, as well as a Jewish police force, a welfare agency, a labor committee, a health agency, and a whole governmental apparatus. People thought this was a good thing. We would no longer have to look at all those hostile faces, endure those hate-filled stares, no more fear, no more anguish. We would live among Jews, among brothers. Of course, there were still unpleasant moments. Every day the Germans came looking for men to load coal into military trains. Volunteers for this kind of work were few, but apart from that, the atmosphere was oddly peaceful and reassuring. Most people thought we would just remain in the ghetto until the end of the war, until the arrival of the Red Army. Afterward, everything would be as before. The ghetto was ruled by neither German nor Jew. It was ruled by delusion. Some two weeks before Shavuot, a sunny spring day, people strolled seemingly carefree through the crowded streets. They exchanged cheerful greetings, children played games, rolling hazelnuts on the sidewalks. Some schoolmates and I were in Ezra Malik's garden, studying a Talmudic treatise. Night fell. Some twenty people had gathered in our courtyard. My father was sharing some anecdotes and holding forth on his opinion of the situation. He was a good storyteller. Suddenly the gate opened and Stern, a former shopkeeper who now was a policeman, entered and took my father aside. Despite the growing darkness, I could see my father turn pale. What's wrong? we asked. 
I don't know, I've been summoned to a special meeting at the council. Something must have happened. The story he had interrupted would remain unfinished. I'm going right now, he said. I'll return as soon as possible. I'll tell you everything. Wait for me. We were ready to wait as long as necessary. The courtyard turned into something like an antechamber to an operating room. We stood waiting for the door to open. Neighbors hearing the rumors had joined us. We stared at our watches. Time had slowed down. What was the meaning of such a long session? I have a bad feeling, said my mother. This afternoon I saw new faces in the ghetto. Two German soldiers. I believe they were Gestapo. Since we've been here, we have not seen a single officer. It was close to midnight. Nobody felt like going to sleep, though some people briefly went to check on their homes. Others left but asked to be called as soon as my father returned. At last, the door opened and he appeared. His face was drained of color. He was quickly surrounded. Tell us, tell us what's happening. Say something. At that moment, we were so anxious to hear something encouraging. A few words telling us that there was nothing to worry about. That the meeting had been routine, just a review of welfare and health problems. But one glance at my father's face left no doubt. The news is terrible, he said at last. And then one word. Transports. The ghetto was to be liquidated entirely. Departures were to take place street by street, starting the next day. We wanted to know everything, every detail. We were stunned, yet we wanted to fully absorb the bitter news. Where will they take us? That was a secret. A secret for all, except one. The president of the Jewish council. But he would not tell, or could not tell. The Gestapo had threatened to shoot him if he talked. There are rumors, my father said, his voice breaking, that we are being taken somewhere in Hungary to work in the brick factories. It seems that here we are too close to the front. After a moment's silence, he added, each of us will be allowed to bring his personal belongings, a backpack, some food, a few items of clothing, nothing else. Again, heavy silence. Go and make the neighbors, said my father. They must get ready. The shadows around me roused themselves as if from a deep sleep in a silently never direction. That is part two of chapter one of the night.